we're starting a series called Made for More. So, in this series, we're talking about a lot of different topics. In this series, we're going to be talking about dating. In this series, we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about gender. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about pornography. We're going to talk about same-sex attraction. We're going to talk about sexual identity. Some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, holy crap, Jerry just said sex like five times in the first ten seconds. Wow. We're just getting started, y'all. Here we go. All right? Made for more. And here's the deal. Whether you're a sixth grader and all you want to do is play Fortnite all day, or you're a twelfth grader and all you want to do is get a boyfriend or girlfriend, this is for you. Not that all people do those things in those grades, but just saying. Whoever you are, whatever grade, whatever stage of life you are in, this is for you. I think that uh, the topic of sexuality, the topic of all, all these kind of things is, is kind of seen as taboo. You know, like, oh, that's something that maybe we shouldn't talk about in church. But I kind of hope to, to change your view on that. Because I think this is, if we should talk about it anywhere, I think we should talk about it in church. Most of all. Because as we're going to talk about tonight, God is the one who created all this, and God is the one who has the authority over it all and knows what's best for us in these contexts. So whatever idea you have in your brain of sexuality, if you have or you think you have this super Christian idea in your brain or you have no idea what is right or whatever, either way, your idea of what God wants for your life is not 100% accurate. In fact, I would say what God wants for your life is better than you could even fathom when it comes to this. And so, as we take time to talk about these subjects, a lot of these are sensitive subjects, right? There's, there's some triggering subjects, there's some things that uh, the church has been known for, or maybe stereotyped for, for uh, being very militant, very very abrasive on some of these different subjects we got to get one thing straight from the beginning and that's that God loves you period God loves you period God loves you uh, regardless of what stakes you mistakes you have made God loves you uh, regardless of who or what you're attracted to God loves you uh, regardless of choices you have made things you regret things that you might do God loves you period, end of story. God loves you and knows you just as you are. You know, we hear this like, okay, God loves me. That's something that we hear in church, but God also knows you. It's amazing to me that we can be fully known and also fully loved at the same time, right? Because uh, you can say, oh, they love me. My parents love me. They know, they, you know, these people here, this person over here, my friends, but your parents don't know everything about you. Your friends don't know everything about you, right? You got you got maybe some secrets. You got some thoughts that your parents or friends or people in your life haven't seen. But God knows absolutely everything about you. You are fully known by God. And at the same time, you are fully and completely loved and treasured by the God of this universe. And so I promise you that God's design, when we're talking about these topics. God's design for sex is better than anything you can fathom or understand, and you are valued by the God of the universe. You're deeply loved, you're deeply cared for, exactly the way you are. 
But God doesn't just want to leave you exactly the way you are. He wants to improve your life. He wants to improve your perspective and show you that you are made for more than what you could possibly dream of. You are made for more than you can even hope to imagine. You are made for more than the shows you watch are telling you. You're made for more than maybe what your friends and family may be telling you. The God of the universe has a plan for your life, and it is good. So what are we made for in regards to this topic of sexuality? Even when we try our best to be right, we try to get like maybe the right idea in our brains, we still fall short. Maybe sometimes we, we are too legalistic about it, or maybe sometimes we're too... You know, we're the opposite about it. So there's a lot of different opinions about this topic and these topics that we're going to talk about. But who has the authority to have the final say on these subjects? Who has the authority for how we should live? We're going to start off the series with the question of authority. So who has the authority when it comes to, hey, this is how you can have the best sex life possible. Who has the authority for that? Who has the authority uh, for what should be admired in a man or a woman? Who has the authority for how we should live our lives? Who do you give authority? Maybe when I say the word authority, you thought of people like uh, your parents, teachers, and those, those may be true. Those are authorities in your life. But what are things that influence you and shape your view on sexuality? Maybe it's what people say at school. Maybe it's TikToks. Or, or YouTubers, something crazy. I just talked with Kate Shapiro earlier tonight. She was telling me that it's getting close to a lot of teenagers between about 15 and 18, averaging around somewhere around nine hours a day on some form of social media, whether that be TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, whatever that may be. What is the authority? What are the things that are shaping your views in your life? Could be shows you stream, and whose authority are you submitting to in your thought life and in your physical life? That word authority has the same root as the word author, okay? So if you're an author, how many of you guys have written an essay for school? Everybody, right? So everyone in here in some way, you are an author because you had to write something for school. How many of you guys had to write like a story for school? Like you made up a story. Okay, so we've all authored our own little mini novel or story, right? So you are an author, and as the author of the story that you wrote, you are the one that's in charge. You get to say what that book's about. You get to say what that story is about. But what if somebody takes your essay or your story that you wrote, and they put their name on it, and they say, I'm the author. What do we call that? It starts with a P. Plagiarism. Plagiarism, right? So raise your hand, plagiarize. No, I just kidding. Trista, put your hand down. No. All right, so I'm just kidding. But... Plagiarism, right? Plagiarism is lying because what plagiarism does is you put your name on it. You say, I'm the author of this. I'm the author of this essay. I am the author of the story. I'm the one who has the authority to say, this is mine. That's what plagiarism is, okay? Genesis 1-1, our first verse tonight. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Can you see Bible words to memorize? Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pretty easy Bible words to memorize. Here's the point, though. God is the author of creation. 
God is the author of creation. So that means that God is the one who has authority over creation. He created it. He made it, right? So there's one authority when it comes to pleasure and how to have the best pleasure in life, and that's the one who created it. There's one authority in how to live your best life and who to live your life for, and that's the one who made your life. God is the author of intimacy. God is the author of relationships. God is the author of pleasure. So because he is the author, he has the authority to say how we can have the best intimacy, the best relationships, and the best pleasure in life. And the things that claim that they have the right view, that they have the authority to tell you how to live your life, that's plagiarism because they are not the author. They are not the creator. The creator is the only one who has the authority to say how his creation can best live their lives and best prosper in their lives. So God has revealed himself to us through his word. And so as we're going through this series, talking about topics related to sexuality, we're going to look at scripture. We're going to start out the series tonight by looking at both the authority and the purpose of scripture, of the word of God. So we're starting out tonight in 2 Timothy. I should probably just read from paper. Oh, from 2 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Have you guys ever wondered, what's the big deal about the Bible? Like, why do we read the Bible? Has anybody ever wondered that? I've wondered that. Okay, so we've got a couple honest people. And a bunch of liars. No, I'm just kidding. But we've wondered that, right? You ever wonder, why the Bible? Or maybe you're wondering now. Why? Who's wondering now? Why the Bible, right? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we see this book that is thousands of years old as an authority on how we should live our lives, even as an authority on topics that we do with now in the 21st century, when we're looking at this book that was written, some of these things way before the, the even like year one, right? Why do we look at the Bible as an authority? Well, we're going to talk about a, a couple of different reasons why tonight. So the first one is that scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is God-breathed. So we're going to go back to our essay illustration real quick. So let's imagine that you need to make an essay for score or something like that, and you do not write or you do not type this essay. You say the words and you have a friend that types it for you. Who is the author of that essay? Is it your friend that typed it? Or is it you that said it? It's you, right? Because the creativity, you know, the, the actual words, it came from your brain, right? They're, all they were, they were a conduit. They were a thing that, that wrote it for you. So the first point that we're talking about tonight is that scripture is God breathed and the word of God was written by people but God used people through his Holy Spirit to write this word but here's the deal how do we know that God is the author why couldn't somebody just take this book or just write this thing and say hey I have this God told me this there's a lot of crazy people out there that will tell you God told me this and then they say something totally whack has anybody ever seen that before I've seen it yeah God told me you need to give me $100 or whatever. Like crazy stuff, okay? 
So why couldn't someone just take what they wrote and say, God told me this, let's throw it in the Bible, right? Could that happen? Could that have happened? Some of you guys are like, maybe, I don't know. It's important for us to ask these questions. What is the source and validity of what we're reading here? How do we know that the Bible was actually God-breathed? I mean, you guys, for example, at school sometimes, have you guys ever had like a friend or maybe you, maybe you, I don't know, but like they call the school and be like, hello, my name is whatever my mom's name is. And then can you let my son or daughter out of school early? But really it's not the mom. It's like a kid calling to get let out of school early. Have you guys ever seen that happen? That's never happened? Oh, I totally. People used to do that all the time when I was in high school. I don't know. Maybe it's harder to get away with these days, but that would happen, right? So they're pretending to be someone else, right? They're pretending like, hey, I am the parent letting the kid out of school, but really they're lying. How do we know that the Bible is not written by pretenders that said they were speaking on behalf of God, but they really were not? How do we know? Here's a few reasons why. We can talk about a ton of reasons, but we're going to go over a few brief reasons why. Number one, Bible is historical fact. The Bible is written by real people in real places in real times. There's this long verse in 2 Peter. I'm going to read you guys. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice, it's not eyewitness, it's eyewitnesses. So there's many people who were eyewitnesses of his majesty who can validate the story, not just one. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's saying, we are testifying that Jesus is the Son of God, because we all together as a group of eyewitnesses heard this. And we have prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, I bold this, I underline this. This is important. That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible was written by eyewitnesses. You can go to these places and see archaeological evidence for the things that Scripture claims. You can go there today. You can go to Israel. You can go over there and see what the Bible says. And I think that the most compelling eyewitness testimony in Scripture is the eyewitness of the resurrection. And here's why. If you made up a lie, and you know it was a lie, and someone held a gun to your head, would you be willing to die for that lie? Really? <laughs> That's pretty dumb. Most of us probably not. If we knew for a fact, I, I made up a lie, and someone said, was that a lie? And you like, hold it, hold it under your head. You would probably be like, oh yeah, I was just, I was just kidding, man. And then go on with your life, right? Here's the deal. The resurrection was witnessed, the resurrected Christ was witnessed by hundreds of people. And in the early church, people that saw the resurrected Jesus were undergoing persecution and they died for their faith. They died. Some of them were hung on crosses. 
Some of them died in horrible ways. But I think the testimony of their death was a testimony that tells us what they saw was real. Because you're not going to die for something that you made up. You're not going to be nailed to a cross upside down like Peter was, the guy who wrote 2 Peter, this, this letter. You're not going to be willing to go through, through something like that unless what you saw and what you've experienced is real. And hundreds and hundreds of people were killed for seeing the, the resurrected Christ, for believing in Christ. And throughout church history, thousands, maybe millions, millions of people have died for this faith. Even today, you can see the evidence of how God is moving. Today, you can see miracles. Today, you can see changed lives. So the Bible is historical fact written by real people, real places, and real times. Here's a second point. It's the unity of the Bible. There's about, give or take, probably mid, around 30 or so people in here, okay? We, as 30 people, are not going to agree on every point of discussion, whatever that discussion may be. We're just not. We're going to disagree. We all come from different walks of life, different kinds of families, uh, maybe go to different schools, different education that we've gotten, whatever it may be. We're not all going to agree on everything, right? That's fair to say. But with the Bible, the thing that's so profound about it is the unity that we find in Scripture despite the diversity of its authors. Authors being little a, uh, the people that God used. The Bible is written by over 40 authors, all different kinds of people. The Bible is written by kings. The Bible is written by servants. The Bible is written by rich people, poor people, smart people, dumb people, white-collar workers, blue-collar workers like fishermen. All kinds of different people. Tax collectors, the Bible was written by so many different kinds of people. It was written in different genres. Some of the Bible is poetry. Some of the Bible is a list of rules. Some of the Bible is this or that. So there's all these different genres, all these different kinds of people. The Bible was written on three different continents, over something like 12 different countries, three different languages, over a period of 1,600 years, yet... The entire Bible harmoniously describes one story of redemption. There's no other book that does this. There's no other book where you get all these different people from all these different walks of life telling one harmonious story of redemption. Unless there's really just one author. And that's the one who wrote it. That is the author of creation, the author of scripture, God. Here's the third reason. So the first reason was Bible's historical fact, real people, real places, real times. The second one, the unity of scripture. The third one is prophecy, okay? So I wanna illustrate this and I wanna make clear, I hope you understand my illustration. So can you show the next slide, Rodney? So I saw this uh, on Instagram and it's pretty small, but I'll explain it to you guys. So this is a bet. So I like to start out by saying, I am not promoting gambling. If you go home today and you're like, Jared said that we need to all go sports gamble and stuff like that. You totally missed the point. That is not the point of this illustration, all right? But I want to show you this. This guy took 50 cents, okay? And what he did was he, he chose some different basketball games. And he said, okay, on this basketball game, this guy's going to score the first bucket. On this game, this guy's going to score first and so on and so forth. So he took six basketball games and guessed who's going to score the first point in each game on this one day. 
and he got it right. So his 50 cents became $130,000 because he guessed right. What are the odds of that, you think? Probably pretty low, right? No, no, no. 50 cents is the total bet. The total bet was 50 cents. He said 50 cents, and he's betting on, it's a combination, if that makes sense. All these things combined, he bets 50 cents. That 50 cents turns into 103,000. Yeah, one of these fellows, he gets nothing, he loses 50 cents. Okay, that's crazy, right? The odds of that happening are so astronomically low. You're like, wow, this is, that's something short of a miracle, okay? Here's the deal, here's why I bring this up. I wanna to talk to you guys about the odds of Jesus Christ being the Messiah by coincidence, okay? So here's the deal. The Bible is proven to us to be true in part because of prophecy. This guy who did that bet, like, he got really lucky. We probably don't believe that he could predict the future. I don't know, maybe. But, like, he got really, really lucky, okay? Because the odds of that were so small. The Old Testament is full of prophecies of the Messiah, of the Christ, and who he would be. The odds of Jesus fulfilling eight of these Old Testament prophecies Someone did a whole math equation, you can look at it online, about the odds of these different things. It's one out of one with 17 zeros behind it. If Jesus was to fulfill eight prophecies, just eight. Go to the next one, Ronnie. If Jesus was to fulfill 48 Old Testament prophecies, the odds of this happening were one out of, that's a one with 157 zeros after. I don't even know what that number is, because it's a billing gazillion, whatever, I don't know, maybe So those are pretty low odds, right? That's pretty incredible. In fact, you might say that there's something divine. Okay, but that's just 48 Old Testament prophecies. How many Old Testament prophecies did Jesus really fulfill? It's over 60. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. So, if this is the odds with just 48, what do you think the odds are with over 300? We, we don't have room. Like, we don't have enough screens in the church for that many zeros, right? This is not coincidence. This is divine prophecy. God prophesied for himself through his word that he would come to save. And you can bet your life on that. And many people have. Here's why it matters that scripture is God-breathed. In the book of Genesis, God breathed life into Adam. God's breath. In fact, with God's own breath, he created everything, right? God spoke and there was life. God spoke and everything came to be in existence. God's breath is the source of life. His word and his words bring us life. And so things that are contrary to his words will bring us spiritual death. It'll bring us separation from God. It'll make us less of who we were made to be. So on the topic of sexuality, we have to ask ourselves, are we going to trust in the authority and the life-breathing word of God? Are we going to trust in the authority that brings us life? Or are we going to trust in another authority that brings us death? The next point is that scripture teaches us what is right and exposes what is not right. 
So back to that verse, uh, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay? That's what this is talking about right here. Scripture teaches us what is right and exposes what is not right. It shows us how to walk in the way of righteousness. So when you learn a new skill, you have to learn the right way to do it, but at the same time, you kind of also have to learn what not to do. Okay, I'm gonna give an example of golfing. I remember one of my first times golfing were little, maybe like, I don't know, I might have been sixth grade, my little sister was like even younger. And we go out to the putting, the putting area at this golfing range. And my little sister, she takes the putter and she goes like this. <laughs> That's not how you putt, you guys. That's not how you putt. You don't swing back. She probably saw it on TV, but guess what? I was standing right, right behind her, so like right in my head, okay? So yeah. That's what little sisters do sometimes, but it's okay. So I started to learn how to golf a little bit more. I got this friend who's not that old, but like inside he, his heart is like a super old man, Joshua Tease, shout out. So anyways, <laughs> Josh, Josh, is, Josh is teaching me how to golf a little bit. We're both kind of learning and growing. Um, and so we go there and Josh is showing me, here's some tips he learned from some of his friends at work or whatever. And, he said, okay, well, you know, you gotta bend your knees a little bit. You wanna be this far from the ball. Um, you want to make your left elbow as straight as possible. And even as you're, you're moving, you wanna keep this elbow straight, okay? So there's, there's different points. You gotta know what to do right. You gotta keep your eye on the ball, keep the elbow straight. You gotta swing just right. You gotta always stay looking at the ball. You gotta, you know, try not to hit the air and all these different things. So those are things that they have to do right. But there are also things you aren't supposed to do. You're not supposed to miss the ball, right? Like that's kind of the whole point. But when you do miss the ball, it's like, and your whole back just like cracks all the way up and it's like, oh man, I just lost a couple of years of life. But you know, or if you hit the ground, then you lose like a solid like five months of your life right there. That is, is painful, man. So you have to know what's right to do. You know, you can't let go of the golf club. You have to know what's wrong to do because you let go of the golf club, you can fly and smack somebody, hit a squirrel, I don't know. We tried to hit a scroll, but we missed. But anyways, <laughs> uh, uh, this is being recorded. All right, anyways, uh, we need to ask the question, why? When it comes to right and wrong, when it comes to what the Bible says is right and wrong, we need to ask the question, why? Why is the Bible uh, teaching me this? Why is the Bible giving me reproof on this? Why is the Bible correcting me on this? Why is the Bible training me in righteousness on this? We need to ask the question, why? Why is this right? And why is this wrong? And as Christians, when it comes to the topics of sexuality, I think people tend to get really legalistic. And they think about, okay, what's right and wrong? But they don't ask the question, why? Uh, they think they say things like, "Oh, well, I think we're just we just are not supposed to have sex till we're married, so we got to try really hard to do that, and then then we'll be okay." But they never ask the question, "Why does that matter? Why?" And if you're not asking the why questions, then you're not really gonna be able to even do that. You're gonna be like, "What's the point in this?" Right? We have to ask the question, "Why?" And when it comes to understanding Scripture and what's best for us, what God wants to be best for us. Scripture tells us what is right, but it also tells us why it is right. It tells us what is wrong, and it tells us 
why it is wrong. You need to ask the why question. If you never ask the question why, then your faith is only going to be surface level. It's only going to be surface level. It's, it's not going to have deep roots. As soon as the scorching sun comes out, if your faith is like a plant, the scorching sun is going to scorch it away. If it rains, it's going to get washed away with the floods. You have to have deep roots, and you build deep roots in your faith when you ask the question, why? And God answers that question through his word. As we are in this series with our small groups on Sundays, and perhaps if you guys are you know, talking to your, your parents about these uh, subjects, I want for you guys to be asking those why questions. It's so important. Second Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then here's the point. Here's the why. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. Here's the next last point tonight. The message of scripture completes us. The message of scripture completes us. Our culture treats topics like sex and dating and relationships like those are the things that are supposed to complete us. How many of you guys ever watched a movie and the, the guy that was like, you complete me. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. It's like, come on, dude. Like, come on. You complete me. That's something that we hear, right? It's like, what? Are you not like a full person? You got like a missing puzzle piece on your elbow or something? Like, we are not meant to be completed by anything ultimately other than God's Holy Spirit and it's Christ. Christ completes us. The message of Scripture, the Gospel, is really what completes us. Nothing can complete you ex except for the God who created you. God created you in His very own image. But sin has broken that, right? Sin has led to scars, to brokenness in our lives. But God can pick up those broken pieces because He is the Creator. He, he's the author. God can complete you. And he created you to do good things. It says that we may be completely equipped for every good work. But here's the problem. Sexual brokenness makes us feel incomplete. It makes us feel shame. It makes us feel horrible. I was just talking to a, a close friend, uh, an Oikos member of mine. And he said, I've been... Chasing after women, I've been trying to find satisfaction in that, but I, I can't. It's, it's not satisfying me, and I don't know what to do. And I asked him, I said, why do you think it's not satisfying you? He said, well, I wake up the next day, and uh, I still feel the same. And I said, no, that doesn't answer why. That's just the evidence that it's not satisfying you, because you feel the same. Why is it not satisfying you? Why are these temporal things not satisfying you? I said, maybe it's because you were created to be satisfied by something eternal, not by something temporal. Maybe you're made for more than you thought you were. The place where we are complete is at the cross of Jesus Christ. We bring the broken pieces of our life exactly the way we are, exactly in our mess, whatever that brokenness is, Whatever that mistakes are, we bring it to the cross of Christ. We lay it at his feet. And he changes us. 
he transforms us. He immediately showers us with his grace. He showers us with his love. And he shows us that we were made for more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we're kicking off this new series tonight, God, we thank you that you have made us for more than we could even hope or we could even imagine. But we thank you and praise you that you are a good God, that you're a good God that takes us back every time. And as we're going through all these different topics that we're talking about this series, related to the topics of brokenness that hits so close to home, God, I just pray that students would feel your love, feel your grace in this place, that life change would happen, God, that you would correct us where we need correcting and show us the right way, Lord, but show us why. Show us why it matters. Show us why your way is the best way. Show us why we are made for more, and we hope in that, Lord, and we hope in the cross of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.